The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today, we talk with Dr. Marisa Elias, who many refer to as one of the pioneers of social-emotional learning and character development. Dr. Elias is a professor of psychology at Rutgers University, director of the Rutgers Social-Emotional and Character Development Lab, and co-director of both the Collaborative Center for Community-Based Research and Service and Academy for SEL in Schools. Dr. Elias talks with us about how the field of social-emotional learning began, how far it's come over the past four decades, and what he's excited about for the future of SEL. Welcome, everyone, to the Grow Kinder podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Andrea Lovenhill, and I'm missing my co-host today, Mia Dosis, who couldn't be with us. But I'm excited because we do have a special guest co-host for our episode today, and that is Joan Duffel, Executive Director of Committee for Children. And I've worked with Joan for quite a while now, but Joan has actually worked in the field of SEL for 37 ish years, uh, which is is much longer than my tenure, but you've done so much for the field and in moving us forward. And I benefit from your work every day. So thank you for being here and the work that you've done. Thank you, Andrea. And I'm honored to be here today sharing this podcast time with you and with Maurice Elias, our special guest. And I'm excited, especially because Maurice has really been one of the pioneers in this field of social emotional learning and in character education. And he's somebody that I have respected my entire career and I, you know, have learned so much from him. So really excited to be in this conversation today. Yeah, we're just going to have an SEL love fest today. That's That's our plan. All right. Well, welcome, Maurice, to the podcast. We're so honored to have you with us today. Excited to have this conversation. And for our listeners who may not know you and who are new to the social-emotional learning world, and even for those who aren't, we'd just like to hear more about you and your story. Um, You know, many consider you, myself among those people, the expert when it comes to social-emotional learning. and, And some would go so far as to say, that you are the grandfather of social-emotional learning. I say that because I'm a grandma and you're a grandpa, so we're a little long in the tooth, both of us, in this work. But, you know, I think that's one of the exciting things about talking to you is that you have this very deep and rich background in this work before we even called it social-emotional learning character development, before those terms were Uh, coins. So would you talk a little bit about, you know, when you started working in the field of social emotional learning and and just some of that story about how you got here? You know, it it is a pleasure to to be chatting with you about this stuff and to to think back. I, I'm I'm feeling old when you call me the grandfather of of anything. Good. But, <laughs> but but I got started back in this work thanks to uh, Myrna Shore and George Spivak who were doing this work back in the mid-70s. That's right. And again, it wasn't called social-emotional learning. It was called social competence promotion, social skills. But And my entry into this came through prevention. So I was being trained as a clinical psychologist, and it just began to occur to me that a lot of the things that I was being asked to treat didn't have to be as severe as what was showing up in my office. And there were a lot of things that, if they had happened earlier, would have prevented 
the difficulties that I was seeing. I just became more and more interested in the in the prevention aspect. And just through the serendipity of being in a graduate program with someone who had trained with Spivak Insure, his name was Steve Larson, I was introduced to this area of uh, social problem solving, uh, which was a branch of Myrna and George's uh, interpersonal cognitive problem solving. Now ICPS, now I can problem solve. And and so thanks to that, I got I got roped into helping Steve Larson on his dissertation, and that got me started in doing this work. Now we're going back to uh, the mid seventies. Wow. You know, that is so exciting to hear because Myrna Schur and, and George Spivak's work in social problem solving really provided a lot of great fodder uh, and inspiration for the work we do as well. So, uh, you know, I think the whole field has a lot, uh, uh, owes a lot of gratitude to them for that work. And I'm so glad you called them out in particular because they've they've yeah. really were pioneers in this work as well. They, they were they they were they were visionaries in this work, and a lot of what we do today is not vastly different than what they were doing. We've refined it. We've put on some more bells and whistles. I think there's much more emphasis now on emotion than when George and Myrna were working on this. I think things were more cognitive in the old days. And, and, you know, emotion was uh, looked at as something that we, we had to somehow squelch in order to get good cognitions to come to the fore. But, but things have come a long way since then. Yeah. And I would say behavioral too, cognitive. And, you know, we also had a big focus on, you know, just practicing a behavior. And, and right. I think those things are still in SEL for sure. They're very strong in SEL, but the emotion focus is big. Yeah, the emotion focus is big. You know, when we first start our, our brand of social problem solving, we caught a lot of flack, but our first problem solving step was look for signs of different feelings. Now we're going back 40 years, more mm -hmm. than 40 years. And uh, we caught a lot of flack for that. But it just appeared very obvious to us that it was people's emotions that were leading the action. And if we didn't begin to work with that, we were not going to be successful. I have a follow-on question to that because I'm going to ask all the dumb questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> Love that I've role. I've only been working in, in social-emotional learning and directly with schools for, for the last 12 years or so, which seems that's like a, a long that's time. That's a long time, so Andrea. In a or in a, on a yeah. podcast with, with the likes of you two. I'm curious. I love to hear stories of when there were turning points in research or acceptance of research. And I wonder if you have any of those. Was there a kind of a point where you realized that the, the growing body of evidence there was, you know, this is, this is it, this is going to be a huge lever for kids or where you saw a, a sudden uptake of that is more accepted in, you know, not, not specifically in schools, but in general around really paying attention to emotion and social skills. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's not, it's not a simple thing. There wasn't one eureka moment. There were several First of all, I think the research on emotions, especially the work of Damasio and some of the work by Silvestri that was publicized through ASCD, there was a lot of work that began to identify the role of emotions. But, and you know, when Castle first came into existence, its name was the Collaborative for the Advancement of Social and Emotional Learning. And with that name, it got very little traction. So a meeting was convened at the Fetzer Institute in Kalamazoo with a bunch of superintendents to ask them, well, everybody seems to believe in this, but it's not getting a lot of traction. What's the deal? 
And they basically said was that if you don't talk about academics and show the connection to academics, uh, you're going to have a hard time engaging the school education community. And so that was the start of Castle's changing its name to the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning. We, we, we kept the acronym, but we changed the name. And that, I think, is the pivotal moment in changing the trajectory of this work. That is that the focus became on not simply talking about emotion and social, but connecting social and emotional to academic. And then it just became more and more clear in the research that emotion management was one of the big issues for all children with regard to accessing their learning potential. So, you know, again, the history of, of this work was that it started with kids who had psychopathology of some kind or adjustment difficulties. So the, these were not tier one interventions when they first started. And so as the work progressed, the emphasis was on trying to improve these kids' behavior. But then when it entered into the mainstream, we started to see that there were a lot of kids whose difficulties managing their emotions, not necessarily so extreme, were nevertheless interfering with their learning. So, so it really was this link of social, emotional to learning and academics that I think has um, led this whole area to turn the corner. I, I would really agree with that. That really resonates with me. I want to talk a little bit more, have you talk a little bit more about a field bridging. You have really successfully built a bridge between social emotional learning and character development. You even coined the term social emotional character development, SECD. Can you talk a bit about why you felt it was so important to bring those fields together? In, in retrospect, the way we talk about this now is that, that we view skills as the propeller that moves things forward, but uh, virtue is the rudder that steers things where they have to go. And so, so if you think about social and emotional skills, those skills can be used for any purposes, for good or for bad. They are the skills that help people get things done. The question is, what is it that they want to get done? And that's where you get into the virtue and character uh, situation. And so that, that's kind of how we currently look at it. These two things are completely complementary. I think that the pro-social value of SEL was implicit and has been implicit in the way we talk about it. So we're, we're, we're talking about kids learning for good, but, but the good part is not necessarily embedded in these competencies. I'll tell you exactly where it hit me that this, this marriage needs to happen. I was at a conference for what was then the Character Education Partnership, and I walked into the exhibit area and there was a table advertising the Laws of Life essay contest. And at that time, we had started to work with the Plainfield Public Schools, which is an urban uh, minority, poor district, terrible test scores, all kinds of behavioral issues. They were starting down this road of working with uh, quote unquote SEL, and it wasn't quite catching. When I saw this table with the Laws of Life essay on there, it just hit me that this this was the missing piece. The idea of getting kids to think about what values were important to them and committing them to writing seemed to me to be the factor that would motivate their social and emotional skill development. And subsequent research, we've found things like, for example, 
populations of middle school kids that we work with, that when you ask them about their future, they don't think they're going to lead a happy and successful life. We've also heard other stories and data about kids that don't believe they're going to live past age 30. So when you start to put all this stuff together, you, 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 know, you then begin to ask the question, so why should I be bothered with these pro-social skills? Or why should I be bothered with much of anything preventive uh, if I don't think I'm going to be around or if I don't think it's going to turn out well? And so the idea of getting kids to begin to identify uh, reasons, if you will, to, to be good became an important adjunct to develop, asking the kids to develop social and emotional competencies. You know, way back in our, in our very early social decision-making curriculum, we started each skill development segment with what we call the rationale. And by that, I mean, we would ask kids, so why is it important to you to calm yourself down? Why is it important to you to have to listen? I mean, it's obvious why the teacher wants you to listen, but, but why do you have to listen? And, and by getting kids to start to identify times in their lives when these skills actually matter, we realize that, that, that we then open them up to benefiting from these wonderful curricula that are out there. I mean, the curricula are great, but you know the analogy that we use sometimes is, is like a radio, right? So if music, high quality, wonderful, stereophonic music is being broadcast on the radio and the receiver is not on, then the, the listener is not going to benefit from it. And no matter how much better we make the signal, and no matter how much better we make the music, i.e. the curriculum, if, if, the, if the off switch is off, it's not going to matter. We just began to see character and virtues as being the, the entryway to turning on the on switch. Great. That, that is a great explanation. Thank you. I, I also just want to thank you for using metaphors other than sports metaphors. <laughs> I, I've enjoyed the um, the boat the boat metaphor and the music metaphor are really resonating. I'll be careful. I know Maurice is a baseball fan. Yeah, we, so. I, there are so many sports fans, and sports <laughs> metaphors are not always the best ones for me to get the concept. All right. Well, I'll, I'll try. Um, I'll try but, to hold off on this. Yeah, but I, I've appreciated. <laughs> The other thing I, I wanted to get, I have actually a couple of questions. First, I, I know that now you're leading the Rutgers Social, Emotional, and Character Development Lab. I'd love to hear, you've made these connections about what the strong link is and what you think the key is to, to developing those social skills. What work are you excited about that the Rutgers Lab is doing right now? Well, we're, we're, we're doing a bunch of things. And by the way, I should mention that we used to be called the Social, Emotional, Learning Lab, and then we changed our name to Social, Emotional, and Character Development. And whether you're interested or not, I'll tell you the way that term came about. <laughs> so in New Jersey, we have a very strong character education tradition, and we have a pretty strong uh, social decision-making, social problem-solving tradition. And when it came time for the two groups to come together under a project that, that I was working on called Developing Safe and Civil Schools, we knew we had to find a common name. And so we basically put together many, many name possibilities. And some people would like one better, and some people would like another better. And then we hit upon one that no one liked, social, emotional, and character development. And that's how we knew. That's how we knew it was the right name. Because this way, nobody felt ownership to it. 
<laughs> so, All right, sort so, of an anti-branding exercise. It, yep, it turned out to have been good to, because it doesn't require explanation. You know, so who wouldn't be against social, emotional, and character development? Social, emotional learning. You say that word, people say, "Well, what's that?" But social, emotional, and character development, people just kind of get. Our lab in in trying to focus on that. We, we've had a number of projects. One of the biggest projects we've had is really working with urban, minority, disadvantaged school districts because we felt that that was the that was kind of the part of the SEL world uh, that had been relatively neglected. And so we most recently completed a project called Mosaic, which stands for Mastering Our Skills and Inspiring Character. And we worked with the Jersey City Public Schools, we worked with their middle schools to create a three-year intervention that typically goes through their advisory periods. And the whole idea was to create a spiraled and integrated character and social-emotional curriculum approach. We're very excited about that. We have that on our website. The curriculum is available for anybody to download and use if they would so choose which is uh, yeah, secdlab.org and slash mosaic gets you to the curriculum materials. And that curriculum experience, which uh, really has been transformative for some of the schools that used it, and nevertheless had some complexities to it. And so we drew from that curriculum the part of the curriculum that trained kids in social action methodology. So an implicit part of what we want to do, particularly with kids who are feeling disempowered and in many cases uh, themselves very neglected, not valued, we felt that it was that we not only wanted to give them sort of generic social and emotional skills, but but to to mobilize those skills in the service of empowerment and taking social action. And we wanted that to start at the level of the school and then move out into the community. So that is embedded into the mosaic curriculum. So kids are, are taught those skills. Student ambassadors are identified that lead their advisories and their peers in developing those skills. But we also felt that that needed to be more accessible. So we have created another project called Students Taking Action Together, STAT. And in essence, it's taking the social, emotional, and character development technology and applying it to social studies. So we want our kids to think of social studies as decisions made by people in contexts, exploring various perspectives. We want our kids not to demonize one side or another, but to recognize that, that in all conflicts and in all issues, people are trying to figure it out. And they don't always arrive at the best conclusions, and we don't always agree with the conclusions that they arrived at, but we need to understand them. We need to understand the perspectives and be willing to, to, to delve into it and not demonize. And so we want our kids to use those skills to analyze the past so they can bring those skills into the present and analyze issues in their school, issues in their community, and issues in the world from the perspective of a taking a problem-solving, perspective-taking empathy approach. You know, this gets into a little, and and you'll pardon the expression, inside baseball type talk here. (laughs) Here we go, Andrea. (laughs) But I was, uh, go ahead. Again, thinking that there's a natural convergence between, in fact, many of the national social studies standards and SEL, 
because social studies standards often want kids to take different perspectives and, and learn different ways of doing things and take a problem-solving approach to global issues. So there is a natural compatibility there. Yeah, for sure. I want to bring us back up for a bit because when you're when you're saying inside baseball, despite it being a sports <laughs> metaphor, I do understand <laughs> what you mean. And I have to say that in a lot of the conversations that I have with educators, this umbrella of social emotional learning and and character development is conf- is a bit confusing. And they're and they're highly educated and they know what they really want to get from their kids and for their kids. But so many things have been sort of related or lumped in with social emotional learning. And so those who are who are doing character development sometimes consider it social emotional learning. Those doing mindfulness consider it social emotional learning. The name of our podcast is Grow Kinder and kindness is sometimes brought into social emotional learning, more often probably character development. Mm-hmm. I'm curious Maurice what you what do you carve out? Like when what do you mean when you say social emotional and character development. What are the hallmarks of that if people were trying to put a box around it? Or is it even important to put a box around it? It's not important to put a box around it as a concept. Because what what basically we're talking about when we talk about social, emotional, and character development is we're talking about the basics of how human beings get anything done in their life. It's not a program. It's not an entity. It, w- it wasn't discovered. It's just built into us. And so I think that's that's part of the issue. The problem comes in when we talk about its implementation. And so when we say, okay, well, we're bringing this work into the schools, then, then people bring in a variety of different things under that banner. So for me, the criterion is that, that we need to have a comprehensive approach to social, emotional, and character development in our kids. And there are many sources of that. Parents are doing that. Coaches are doing that. Communities are doing that. Media are doing that. And also the schools are doing that. And so the school is one place, though, where it should be done systematically. And, you know, I think of this no differently than reading skills. No one invented reading skills. They're built in. But if we want kids to be able to read well and fluently and for in-depth understanding, we have to help them get to that point. And that's what I see social, emotional, and character development being. And so when things are brought into the school in the name of social, emotional, character development that don't touch on all of the domains that are episodic, special programs, assemblies, or things that just focus on one skill area. They're not bad, but if we think that that is going to promote the social, emotional, and character development of our kids, then we're making a mistake. And I, and, and I think that's part of the challenge, is that people, people think of it as a program, they think of it as a separate thing, but there isn't anything that goes on in a school that doesn't depend on the social, emotional, and character development of all the people involved in the school. The adults, the well, kids, everybody. Don't you think that's why, you know, assessment and, and I mean, a good kind of assessment, formative assessment, we have to ask the question, what impact are we having? We can't just do things for kids that, that make us feel good. We have to actually look at the outcomes that we're getting. And the tension in that, I think, is that we have, you know, teachers are overburdened with testing as it is, and kids are overburdened with testing. So, 
thinking about ways to make that a light lift, but still to ask that critical question, are we making any difference here? And how, you know, what's the evidence that we are having the impact that we're looking to have? I think the assessment issue is a very complicated issue at this particular point in time, because I think people have different visions of, again, what what social, emotional learning is, and therefore what we should be assessing. So I think that's a problem for sure that the field, if I had to pick the, the area where the field has to make the most progress, that would be high on my list. However, that being said, it, it's something you should be able to see. I mean, it, it's, it's not so mysterious here. If a kid doesn't have social emotional competencies, you shouldn't need an unbelievable excavation of, of some underlying whatever to find it. It should be pretty obvious. Part of it is that we also have so many different sets of terminology for describing behavior that we're trying to bring those together in the same time. So that, that, that's a big challenge for the schools right now. Right. And if we could solve that right now, then this podcast would take <laughs> that would off. Be so like awesome. you wouldn't believe. I actually, I'm going to sw- switch gears though, because um, when you're talking about a comprehensive approach, you specifically mentioned parents and you know the connections between schools and, and parents, depending on the schools and the methodology they're using, they can be kind of tenuous. But you took on writing parent parenting books, and you yourself are a parent and a grandparent, and. What led you to sort of focus in on parenting and, you know, how are you working on that in your own life as a parent and a grandparent? I'm always curious about that because we, when you work in the field of social emotional learning or when you're a psychologist, you just kind of know so much. I'm not a psychologist and I still sort of annoy my family all the time (laughs) with the things that I think we we should be doing or could be doing. And, And so there's two questions in that. One is what really made you focus in and want to write those books on parenting and and then how are you how have you tried to apply that in your own life? Okay, the answer to the question about how and why I focused on parenting is sort of a two-part answer. So number 1 is that we realized that it would be really helpful in our social problem-solving curriculum to be letting the parents know what was going on in school and how they could be complementing it at home. So we began to develop materials to send home to parents that would tell them, for example, something like how to focus on feelings recognition with their child, how to ask questions of their child instead of telling them answers, how to ask questions that would stimulate their problem-solving thinking. So there was all that. Then on the other hand, as a clinical psychologist, implementing a lot of the cognitive and behavioral techniques with clients, they were paying good money to have me ask them to do something that they then refused to do and would come back next week and pay good money. So this, this didn't seem like a productive thing. So it just, it just seemed to me that there were a lot of things that could be gotten out to parents that would be useful for them to know that they could apply in the context of their everyday life that would perhaps forestall their need for getting clinical treatment. And then, of course, when Dan Goleman's book came out, in 1995, Emotional Intelligence, and it was so incredibly popular, that was the impetus for a lot of things happening, So, including the focus on, on parenting. So there are a lot of good reasons, some a priori focusing on the preventive aspect of good parenting, some of it complement, wanting to complement what was happening in the schools. So you know, in essence, anybody doing our social decision-making problem-solving curriculum the accompanying material for that is emotionally intelligent parenting. 
that exists in a comprehensive way for parents who are interested. So as for applying it in, in my own life, I will say that I do that sparingly and with humility. And I was taught this by, by my children, especially by my uh, younger daughter when I was younger, when, when she was younger and I was younger, I was admonishing her about some behavior that she had engaged in. And I was doing it in a way that might be called scolding. She stepped back and said to me, and you call yourself a child psychologist? <laughs> <laughs> So good. So, so that was that was a very uh, that was a liminal moment in my consciousness and understanding that it was important to uh, to live the principles, but not to espouse the principles. And and I think that's the delicate balance. But I think the, look, the same thing is true in a classroom. Teachers have to live what they're doing and not simply put it into their lesson planning. Kids are going to absorb more from the way people model. Now, I will say that one thing that we did learn that's very important is that adults need to spend more time thinking out loud with their kids because there's a lot of things that we do as adults that are incredibly thoughtful and are great models of problem solving, but they're in our heads so our kids don't see it. And so the more time we spend literally speaking our thoughts and our thought processes to our kids, they then begin to see both the good and the bad of decision-making, problem-solving, but they begin to arrive at this idea that being a reflective human being is an important and a good thing. And so we, we, we recommend this very highly to teachers uh, as well as to, uh, to parents because, this, because otherwise, Think of the of the models that kids see for problem solving in the world and in the media and in movies and videos. Uh, not not very exemplary. And so the idea that you have valued people modeling their thought processes becomes uh, becomes useful. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. There were times when my wife would serve hot dogs to our children. And our children, their, their attribution of that was that we hated them because we never let on the thought process that happened to lead to the hot dog getting onto the plate that particular day. And it had to do with other things happening, not leaving enough planning time, not wanting to have starving children. You know, it was, you know, and, and as we began to think out loud and share with our kids, the rationale for some of the things that we did I, I quite honestly think that that helped our kids just kind of be able to take our perspective, maybe offer the benefit of the doubt and not be so sure they understand exactly why somebody's doing something, uh, that, that what may appear on the surface is not necessarily what's going on, so you have to make inquiries. And I think this is a, you know, this is a key to the whole uh, SEL approach. That's great to hear. I'm a verbal processor, so that's definitely it's going on. It's really pretty good, constantly and, in my and in fact, it's exactly what three year olds do. You know, we call mm -hmm. it uh, verbal mediation, where they they actually verbalize what they're seeing and what they're encountering yep. all the time as a way of developing yes. their cognition, because thinking and language are mm -hmm. super deeply tied. So, on another level, what that does is help your kids see that actually thinking out loud to solve a problem 
is a good way to build their cognitive skills. Mm-hmm. I yeah. also have a three-year-old who does that. So That's right. We, no, there's a lot of talking exactly. in my house. <laughs> right. But the, the other critical point that you're making, Joan, is that these are developmental processes that don't stop becoming important when a kid's four. They continue to be important throughout the lifespan, but we lose them and we shouldn't. Right. So I think, you know, it's a great lesson about lessons, yeah. uh, you know, about how to construct these lessons, because I think there's absolutely, it really calls for when you're teaching problem solving skills to 14 year olds, they can also practice verbal mediation. They can practice thinking out loud to solve a problem. Yep. And that actually builds their, uh, their skills in yep, that area. Sure does. It, it shouldn't. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. It sure does. You know, you were talking about parenting, but you and I are both grandparents as well. And I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, what are your favorite parts of being a grandparent? Well, any any time that I spend with uh, Harry and Isaac, Harry is eight, Isaac is four. It's just so much fun to to watch them, to watch them grow, to to see them encounter new things. So, for example, Isaac, as a four year old, Isaac knows that he's funny and he likes to make people laugh, and he works actively at it, and and it's just a, a tremendously rewarding and fun thing to see. And Harry, I think if I had to pick Harry's number one attribute, it would be, guess what? Kindness. Harry, from from very early on, uh, Harry would reach out to kids in his in his cohort, whether it would be preschool or you know early elementary, kids who were different. He is very sensitive to when other people are upset. And literally, being kind is important and also rewarding to him. And, you know, as a, as a grandparent, as a parent, how could you ask for better than that? Wonderful to hear. Do you talk about kindness explicitly in your family? Is that something that you talk about or, or feel is teachable? Because of Mark uh, Weisbord's Making Caring Common Project, we, we're not allowed to talk about kindness. We're only allowed to talk about caring. No, only, only kidding. <laughs> you know, these are, these are different buzzwords that all kind of lead to the same place. It, it leads to being concerned about how other people are feeling and then trying to take steps to be of help where possible. So you can call it caring, you can call it kindness, you can call it empathy, you can call it compassion. So those are things that we do. I don't, I don't know that we use the word kindness as much as we use the word caring. We use the word sensitive, being sensitive to other people. We use that word. And, you know, interestingly enough, as Harry and Isaac get on in, in the school district that they're in, it's going to be important to hear from the school district what words they're using, because those become important words for us to use around the house. You know, not just the words we want to use, but words that are going to have synergy with other things that the kids are hearing. That's what gets so critical to school-wide SEL and the connection of schools and home and school. It's really creating that common language, that common vocabulary, so that the ideas and principles become mutually reinforcing and synergistic when uh, otherwise they don't. So true. So, so true. That's an excellent call out. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the the influence of schools and the home. And we always just like to hear for people that have gone into this work, are there teachers or adults that you remember who really had a positive impact on you when you were growing up? And if so, could you tell us a little bit about one of them? Well, there, there, were, there were a lot of them. One of them was my uh, maternal grandmother, who I called my nonna, 
she was an incredibly kind person and was always kind to me. We lived with her my first seven years of life. And, you know, parents are parents and grandparents are grandparents. And so no matter what happened with my parents, she was always there to be kind and supportive. That has uh, definitely stuck with me. The intrinsic value of being supportive of someone uh, is something that I feel very powerfully. And, and it's something that I think uh, permeates a lot of the work that we do in our lab and our approach to SEL, et cetera. Another key influence on me was Mr. Sloan, who was my ninth grade teacher for problems in American democracy. And I found that class to be very empowering because literally he was teaching us as students to figure out and solve uh, problems in American democracy as problems. And, and, you know, that was sort of implanted in me. And no doubt when I heard about Spivak and Schur's work, it sort of rekindled itself. And then as, as, our, as my own work has proceeded in the schools, the idea of giving kids the tools to analyze, quote unquote, problems in democracy, problems in their schools. I mean, that's the pre direct precursor of the students taking action together uh, program. So those are, those are two among many influences on me. What a great legacy for both of them, given the way you've taken uh, their inspiration forward. So thanks for sharing that, Maurice. Yep, sure. Awesome. Hey, I want to ask you really quickly, because we're going to wind up soon. Is there a major trend you're seeing in the space of social-emotional learning character education that you feel like we should be paying attention to or anything you're concerned about as you look at where we are today and where we're headed? I think that we are approaching the tipping point of social and emotional and character development being part of the conversation about what what education is. And I think that what I see we needs to happen is that social, emotional, and character development needs to be integrated into teacher preparation, uh, administrator preparation, as well as student support personnel preparation, and then licensing standards. Once this becomes the way people do, or as uh, Marvin Berkowitz says, how we be, I think it's going to make all the intervention issues begin to calm down. This doesn't have to be sold. It just needs to be shown. Uh, and then as people see it, they grasp it. Uh, but it would be wonderful if they got exposed to it before their professional patterns became entrenched. Because it's hard right. to change and your you, habits. You, Right. And you've done some work on this, right? You've, you've well, actually... The, the Academy for SEL in Schools has been is directly created to address people who are already in the profession and offer them a certificate in social, emotional, and character development instruction or school leadership with the idea that we want to help move folks along who see that they want to take these, these steps in this new direction but in the context of a, a, of a supportive, no surprise, a supportive environment for taking those steps. It's too much to get into at the moment, but just because someone where wants- people, Where can people find out about that certificate course? They can go to selinschoolsoneword.org and they can learn all about that. Right. And because I think that's so exciting. You know, for and sure. I, and it's such a need. I mean, yeah. it's really, I think people are, are really clamoring for the development 
that that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. If listeners want to know more about you and your work, are there other places they can go? I would say going to uh, our lab website, which is www.secdlab.org. We'll get them to uh, the lab and various projects, the ones I've talked about, Stat Mosaic, the Academy, and others. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Maurice, you never failed to just supersede all our expectations. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Maurice Elias. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. 